Hey, good to see you. It'd be wonderful if you turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. And we're going to continue a series that we started um, about six weeks ago. And we've got to, do you know when, I don't know if, um, if you've ever thought about this, but pastors, we, we set series of, of sermons like months and months and months in advance. And every now and again we think, oh, this is a great idea. I'll teach through the book of Revelation in a time of shaking. Uh, uh, God wants to do some shaping. How are we going to stand? How are we going to posture ourselves as the people of God in a time of, of, of things turning upside down? And, uh, and I didn't reckon on having to preach on Revelation 19 and 20. And uh, that wasn't my ambition. Um, but we're here and uh, we're going to have a go at it. And I'm aware that there are a lot of things going on in people's heads and hearts. Some of you are fathers. And today's Father's Day, and that's a good thing. Some of you, Father's Day is not a good thing. I got a card from my, my four daughters. Um, it looks like this. It's got it's a lovely picture of a dad and a daughter and a rocking chair. You can't see it, but... Um, and the dad is saying something. It's in, a, it's in a bubble. And the dad says this. He's reading a story to his daughter. And the nice daddy buried the nasty, dirty boyfriend deep in a wooded lot where no one would ever find him. The end. I don't know why you think that's funny. Totally appropriate. So that was given to me by my, my four daughters. But, you know, there's an awful, there's an awful lot. We're still booming. Can we? Yeah. There's an awful lot uh, going on in our hearts and minds, isn't there? You, you would be unhuman, inhuman, not to feel somehow moved or somehow shaken or somehow asking questions. When you see some of the terror stuff that's going on, when you see some of the things that shouldn't happen, where you see man's inhumanity to man, and it would be unnatural for us to not ask questions and say, why and what and what's going on? And how do we, as followers of Jesus, if you are, posture ourselves towards God and towards this world in a time of shaking how can we ever be the people who do shaping in the time of shaking? And, uh, and we're going to take a look at the book of Revelation. And I'm going to read, um, gosh, I'm going to read some verses from 19 and 20. And then we're going to ask God to show up big style and help us understand it. Revelation 19. And remember that as we uh, approach Revelation, we're saying this is truth. It's such deep truth that if we allow the word of God to touch our lives, it will shape our lives and change our lives. But we've also been posturing ourselves and saying that we don't, we're not going to take every single word and every single number and every single image literally. We're not going to say 144,000 actually means 144,000. We're going to say it's figurative and it helps us understand something which is truth. We're saying that we believe this to be poetical and story. And in the middle of story, we find the truth of God that directs our path and directs our lives. And so as we come towards the end of Revelation, we're finding some stuff that's pretty, pretty horrendous and pretty dark, but also pretty joyous. And what we're going to find is we're going to find hope in judgment, which are not two words that we usually put together, but we're going to find hope in judgment. And I'm going to posture actually that the thing the world needs more than anything else is the judgment of God. 
And that's not a popular teaching, so you're going to have to stay with me and help me in the process. Revelation 19. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, amen, hallelujah. Do you know, there are only four times that word hallelujah is used in the New Testament. It's all used in, you thought hallelujah was a pretty Christian word, didn't you? Just this passage of scripture, just four times. It means praise God. Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, hallelujah, for our Lord God almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. And we're going to skip down to verse 11. I'm going to read this. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh... He has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And now we're going to skip to Revelation 20. I told you this is going to be a big deal this evening. And then I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. And verse 11 again. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is very old school, isn't it? Let's pray. (laughs)
God, we love you and we believe you to be a God of love. And we ask that in your love, you would mediate by your spirit truth to our lives. So help the preacher and help us as we listen. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Wow, so a few years ago I read an article in one of the tabloids, so I presumed it must be true. It said this, the landlocked country of Swaziland has lost its entire merchant navy. The fleet, which consists of just one ship, has completely disappeared. Transport Minister Ephraim Magugula, however, is not worried. The situation, he said, is completely under control. We believe it is in the sea somewhere, he told the Johannesburg Star. At one time, we sent a team of men to look for it, but there was a problem with drink and they failed to find it. He said, I categorically reject all suggestions of incompetence on the part of this government. The Swazimar is a big ship painted in the sort of bright colors you can see at night. <laughs> Mark my words, it will turn up. <laughs> I just really, I really hope that's true. I really hope no one made that up as a spoof. I really hope that somebody actually does those kind of things. But um, let's pray later on for Swaziland, which has no merchant navy. I'm sure if you walked onto the streets of Edinburgh tonight and you postured to a bunch of random people as you walked along that Jesus was coming back sometime soon and people better get ready, they would laugh in just the way you've laughed about that story. Mark my words, he's coming. If you said that, they, they would think you were one step away from a sandwich born and turn or burn and preach in their face or something like that and they would categorize you as crazy. But here's the thing, throughout church history, that's been the posture of the people of God. We're to expect the return of Jesus. People get ready. Are you ready to receive the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? In fact, more than that, it was Jesus teaching himself. He said, you're to expect my coming, but you're never going to know when it is. You're going to expect my coming, and I'm going to come like a thief in the night. You're not going to be necessarily knowing exactly the signs, but you can know some of the signs in Mark's gospel in chapter 13, and Matthew 24 and 25, and Luke 14. Jesus talks about these things. Mark my words. I will turn up. Are you, are you expectant for the return of Jesus? Do you even think it's a good thing that Jesus might come back? How are you waiting for him? You see, I want to posture that the return of Jesus and the judgment of Jesus is the biggest hope in the world. In fact, it's the only hope in our world. Because we're just about working out that we can't fix it. We're just about working out that we can't sort it. We're just about working out that however many governments come and governments go, they haven't got a solution to the problem of the human condition. The only hope in our world is the return of Jesus as judge. And so we've been studying in, in Revelation and what we found is that it's a pretty enigmatic book. And what we found is it's a book which contains incredible truth. What we found is it's incredibly useful for us because it's a book in which God peels back the veil 
that separates reality from perception and reveals truth and hope. Let me say that again. He peels back the veil that, that separates reality from perception and reveals hope. He says, you're living in a world which is veiled. You're living in a world which is shadowed. You're living in a world which is foggy. And you don't always understand things. And things have been sown into your culture that make you believe things that aren't necessarily true but appear to be true. But I want to show you some stuff that is real. It may appear ridiculous, but ultimately it's truth. The hope in this world is the return of the king. And the return of the king is going to bring judgment. And judgment is a very good thing. And it's incredibly relevant because this book was written to a people who were facing tumultuous times. John is exiled on the island of Patmos for his faith. Church history uh, tells us that they tried to boil him alive in, in, in oil, but they didn't succeed, and so they put him on an island. But most of his friends had been killed for their faith. Many of them had been put in the Colosseum. Some had been lit up as torches, but you certainly would have been persecuted. And the issues of the day, were, what, was it, what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus when leadership seems to be against you and governance seems to be against you and religious systems seem to be collapsing all around you? How am I going to parent my children? How am I going to deal with a livelihood? How can I have a normal life or is it possible to have a normal life? What does church look like in this new reality? And it's powerful and it's relevant because we've got almost exactly the same situations going on. It's hard times, isn't it? And we've got questions about ISIS and Syria and Trump and Putin and Paris and London and Manchester and Kabul and Greenfells. And it's just, how do we make sense of this stuff? We're wrestling with a political system. We, someone said to me the other day, we've got an 18th century political system which was set up to deal with 19th century political issues, trying to deal with 21st century societal problems. We just, we can't fix it. And the same questions are the questions that John and his mates were dealing with. How, how do I walk with Jesus in a world where leaders can't necessarily be trusted, where political systems seem to rail against us, where, where we're tolerant of anything except for the intolerance that we decide is intolerance, except for anyone who espouses a biblical Christian value? How do we, how do we be the church? and live like the church? How do I raise my kids? How do I deal with my finances? And so 19 and 20 of Revelation, I think, are incredibly important for us. And what we see is the wedding feast of the Lamb. We see the full celebration of the people of God, the return of the King, the culmination of the age. But we see him come to judge the world. And before we get into the passage of Scripture and get, get it open with me, I, I want to deal with two significant issues I think that could get in the way unless we deal with them. The first issue is this. What do we understand by evil? And what do we understand by Jesus seeming to release the enemy of God for a thousand years? And the second question is this. What do we understand by the concept of judgment? And how do we understand judgment in our world today the notion of evil we're told look at revelation chapter 20 we're told that for some reason god allows his enemy the enemy of the people of god the enemy of all that is good and wholesome and true in this world 
freedom to wreak havoc for a thousand years. Once again, we, we're not necessarily taking that literally that it is a thousand years. It may well be figurative. It's a period of time. It's a long period of time. Now, Christians have got really excited about this millennium thing, a thousand years thing, and some of them have formed camps. We believe this thing, and we believe that thing. It's pre-something, it's post-something. And, and uh, I want to say two things. One, I think it's figurative, and I think, for what it's worth, that the thousand years is supposed to, we're supposed to understand it as the, the time when Jesus is resurrected to the time that he comes back again. But nobody's going to buy a T-shirt and nobody's going to form a club, and nobody's going to join a gang around this stuff. We're going, to, we're going to posture ourselves that there is war in this world. There is war in this world. And for some reason, God has allowed the enemy freedom to be who he is for a period of time. There is war in this world. There has been war in this world ever since God decided that the number one agenda on his heart for the people that he created is that they have a free and loving relationship with him. There has been war in this world since the moment that God decided that his number one agenda is that you have a relationship with him that is free, that is loving. In that moment, he created the potential and the possibility for there to be a real choice between loving him and following him and not loving him and not following him. And he created the possibility for the personification of evil. If you're going to choose him and it was going to be real and it was going to be love and it was going to be a relationship, you had to be free. It was vital that you were free to not choose him and to not love him and not walk with him. And so Revelation takes it a step further and suggests that Jesus himself has released the enemy, I think, for a period of time to expose himself and to overplay his hand. So that the full reality of the consequences of what it looks like to not choose God gets played out in public. So people begin to see the consequences of what it means to not pursue his wisdom, to not pursue his love, to not pursue his grace, to not pursue his purposes, and to live with the, in the absence of all those things, and to see the evil that develops. So that you might one day choose to pursue the only one who carries truth and wisdom and grace and freedom and life in all its fullness. And the scripture seems to suggest that this gets worse. The evil on this planet gets worse. And, and, and I want to say, of course it does. Because the compound cumulative effect of, of, of the stuff the enemy has sown into this culture, of the, of the things that seem reasonable to us because of the culture all around us, or all around us but are inconsistent with the person of God, has been sown into our culture are designed to keep us from the deep things of God and are designed to destroy us. So let me show you. The enemy sows into a culture a concept of individualism. And we think, we think individualism is a good thing. It's good to be individual. It's good to, it's good to desire to be an, ind an individual and to do things the way we want to do things. But individualism without love becomes selfish. And if you're not careful, in a compound way, it denies us true community. And it denies us the beauty of friendship. And it causes extreme loneliness and radical insecurity and it begins to look evil. 
Consumerism seems like a pretty good thing for most people. I'll have it this, and I'll have it that, and I'll have some of the other, and I'll try this, and I don't have to, I don't have to uh, do a transaction. I'm just going to get this stuff. But consumerism without generosity leads to a twin-track world with radical inequality, poverty, and starvation. We have enough. God's given us enough. But we hoard it, and we keep it to ourselves because we just want more of that experience. Hedonism seems a good thing to most of our culture. It seems a good thing to be at a party, to be able to enjoy whatever we want to enjoy, to have the freedom to do whatever we want to do. But hedonism without holiness leads to no restraint, and no restraint needs, leads ultimately to an implosion of the human condition. And that's why we struggle with addiction and compulsion and obsession. Truth is a good thing, isn't it? I don't think anyone would argue truth is, is a good thing, but truth without grace becomes harsh. And then it becomes not truth. And it begins to evidence itself as fundamentalism and becomes so removed from fundamentalism of all kinds. And then it becomes so removed from love that actually it becomes evil itself. And it's killing us. And it's designed to kill us because we have decided as a culture to live outside of the maker's design. And ultimately, it gets revealed for what it is. It's evil. It's not good. And we stand no... I was trying to think, how do I explain this? How do I communicate this well? Let me try this. I hate Ikea. Really, I do. I'm not joking, this is not just for a preacher, I just, I hate Ikea. I think the devil is reinventing hell based upon designs for Ikea stores. I just think it's a, a horrible place. Every now and again, my wife wants us to go for candles. Uh, we never buy candles. We always spend 40 pounds on nothing in Ikea. But I hate Ikea. I hate it so much. I hate, I hate it so much because I know that the moment I go into Ikea, there's going to be something expected of me. I'm going to have to build a flat furniture and I hate it within an inch of my life I hate it and so you know what happens particularly and I'm probably going to be quite sexist here but but stay with me for I think the men in the room have an issue around this stuff maybe some of the women as well but the men have an issue so we get the flat pack furniture it comes in a box and uh, and if you're like me you use a knife on the box because it tells you not to doesn't it don't use a knife well you know Ikea is not the boss of me Sweden is not the boss of anybody. You know, the knife thing. And then I open the packet and I do what every self-respecting man does. I get the instructions and I go, seven screws and eight pieces of wood and some doweling things and a spinny thing you're supposed to spin around that always ends up hurting your hand, doesn't it? Do you know? So you get the thing, and you do the thing, and you start building the thing, and it always goes the wrong way around. I always put the shelf, one of the shelves, the wrong way around, and then I think I could just paint that rather than undo it. Do you ever think, nobody ever thinks that. But, but what happens always at the end of it is I've got two screws left. I have no idea where they went to. I, have, I don't know whether they give you extra screws. That's what I argue with my wife. I think they give you two extra screws, darling. But the reality is this, I've got a jar full of Ikea screws and bolts somewhere, which means this, that after two years, I mean, Ikea stuff's only supposed to last four, but after two years, my bookshelf starts to lean like this, and then you just have to get a nail. <laughs> That's not how it does it. Here's the thing. It's one thing when it's flat pack furniture. 
It's one thing when you decide to disobey, ignore the maker's instructions when it's flat packed furniture. But when it's your life, and when it's the life of your children, and when it's your health, and when it's your eternal destiny, it's altogether a different thing. God's got a book out. God's got a plan for your life. And God is coming back as a judge to judge the evil in this world. Which oftentimes is the cumulative effect of generations after generation after generation ignoring the original design and building off their parents' or their culture's design. And we are reaping the pain and the results of those kind of decisions. First thing I wanted to talk about, we're going to get to the Bible in a second, was the, was the nature of evil. The second thing I want to talk about is that the greatest hope is judgment. Which is a really weird perspective, I think, because most Christians, if they're embarrassed about anything about God, it's about judgment. Would that be true? If, if you, you're okay with the love of God, you're okay saying God is love, you're okay talking about how incredibly gracious God is and the things that he does and the way he touches people's lives and the provision of God. And most of our songs talk about how incredible his never-ending love is steadfast and sure. And we love, sure, we love doing those songs because they talk about how good God is. But we don't often sing, yay, God is a judge. We love the fact he judges. <laughs> don't know why that's a new song can we put that to music See, we don't we don't talk a lot about the judgment of God and we sound as if we're a little bit embarrassed about the judgment of God and we don't like to talk about it very much but here's the thing the judgment of God is the thing we need in this world more than anything else the Bible is very clear listen the essence of his nature is love check it out we haven't got loads of time but God is love says the Apostle John. For God so loved the world, says Jesus, about how his Father interacts with the world. The activity of his essence, the, 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 the nature of it means that by all, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. The mark of, of his presence in us, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. And some commentators would say that they are all derivatives of that essence of love. So listen, the judgment of God is an aspect of his essence. The judgment of God is an activity of his love. In other words, God is not some kind of dual personality God. He's not schizophrenic. He's not one thing one moment and another thing one moment. It's not that one moment you think, oh, God's in a loving mood today. He got out of bed on the right side of the bed. Or God is in a judging mood today because things are going badly in, in Syria or somewhere else. No, God is always a loving judge and a just lover. That's who he is. You can't separate these things. So when God acts in his justice on this world, he's doing so as a lover. He loves you so much that he's going to judge this world and he's going to judge you. You need and you want his justice. And I think the problem is we're so used to justice and judgment being a negative thing in our thinking, aren't we? As church, we, we, I mean, I'm quite embarrassed about how judgmental we sometimes come across. 
It feels sometimes like we've got all, all our own issues we're dealing with, but we're judging everyone else's lifestyle. And, and we're doing it for all, a whole bunch of good reasons, but, but actually it sounds as if we're judging you and you're in sin and you need to repent. And some of, them, some of the times I walk past churches and I see some of the notices on their boards, I think, oh my word. People out there are miserable enough without us inflicting our judgment upon them. You know, what they should hear from us is, is that God is love and he loves us. And, and so sometimes I think we feel that the ju- judgment thing is difficult because we see it so negatively. And if I'm honest, and I might do a little bit of um, self-revelation here, my judgment is so negative. I find it really difficult to walk from here to the clock in Morningside without judging about 50 people. Honestly, I do. I think in my head, and you might never want me to be a pastor again, but I think in my head, why is he with her? I think, uh, did, did he not think it was a good idea to brush his hair this morning? I think... Why are you eating a burger, honestly? I think to myself, why, why can't you drive properly? Why do you feel you want to cut? I think, why didn't you get your bicycle off the pavement? And sometimes I even say these things. And, 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 but I think these things all the time. And, and within, within like a few hundred yards, I've judged almost everybody that I have seen. It's horrendous, isn't it? I mean, it's okay when you're judging people's clothing. That's fine. But, but everything else is just utterly, utterly horrendous. And here's the thing. I think we project upon God our deficiencies, our negativities as far as judgment is concerned. I think we think God is going to act in the same way. I think we think God is going to be somehow arbitrary, somehow unfair, somehow malicious. But God is not only perfect love, he is perfect justice. And his perfect love gets expressed in perfect justice. And we desperately need his justice. Let me tell you why. Because this game of life does not work without boundaries, without lines, without starts, without stops, and even without rules. We don't have freedom to play if we don't know what we're playing, how we can play, who we're playing with, when the game starts, how we know when it finishes, where are the limitations, restrictions, or rules, who is going to judge, who's going to call foul, and who's going to blow the whistle at the end of time. And if, if we don't have that, we can't even play, and we become stuck And we become suffocated and we become unable to live lives in all its fullness because we were never designed to live outside of the rules, outside of the parameters, outside of the judgments of God. Because he's a good, good father and he's created us to be his good, good children and he's enabled us to live within this game. We need someone to sort it out. You ever think that? Do you ever look at Syria, at ISIS, at Calais, at child abuse and say to yourself, we need someone to sort it out. We need someone to say that's wrong, that's evil. We need someone to come along and sort it out. And we know we can't. We haven't got the moral authority or all the spiritual power to sort the whole thing out. We can play our part. Don't you ever think we need someone who's going to come and call time on it. Somebody needs to get their just desserts. Sex trafficking is wrong. The rich getting richer and richer and the poor getting poorer and poorer and the city becoming more and more twin track. You know, Actually, there's something wrong in that. We need someone who's going to come and judge, come in his love, come in his grace, come in his mercy, come in his compassion, come in his truth, come in his healing. We need God to come and judge. And then John, you need to get there sometime. Done a really good job of avoiding the scripture this evening. <laughs> 
John then gives us a glimpse into the nature of this judge. Turn with me to Revelation 19. And, and, and we, he sees this picture of a huge crowd in heaven. And the crowd is singing and shouting. In fact, the words that he uses is almost like a shout, a cacophony of noise and praise. It's bigger than any sports field that you've ever been in. And they're shouting, hallelujah, praise God. Why? Not just because he saved us, but because he's coming to judge the living and the dead. They're so excited that judgment is coming, which is weird, isn't it? But check out who they understand him to be. Look at verse 11. The scripture says he's faithful and true, which basically means he's going to deal with you correctly. He's faithful in all his ways, and he's true in all his judgments, and he misses nothing. Look at verse 12. It it seems to suggest that his eyes are like blazing fire. And if you read Revelation 1 with me earlier in the series, you'll know this is just a repeat of Revelation chapter 1. And what we're supposed to understand is this. You can fool most of the people most of the time, but you can fool the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords none of the time. He knows exactly what it's like. He knows what you present and what is real. He knows the pain that you've gone through and the pain that you've inflicted. He understands you totally and he's going to get none of it wrong. And then we're told, look, he has an unknown name, which is a bit weird. Because at one moment he seems to be revealing who he is and the next minute he seems to be hiding who he is. And I spent hours trying to work out what that was about. But I reckon this, it's probably wrong, but, but stay with me just for a moment. I think it means this. You can know many things about Jesus and you can know Jesus personally you can know Jesus but ultimately he has a mystery about him because he's God and I think that means you can't suss him, box him in second guess him or or, or work out exactly what he's going to do next. In other words you can't control the judge of all the earth. He's going to do what he's going to do and he doesn't have to justify himself to anybody because he has an unknown name you can never quite work out. And then he goes on to say he's crowned. Look at verse 12. He's crowned with many crowns. In other words, he's not some kind of temporary elected politician who is going to let you down because they will all let you down. doesn't matter whether you're right, left, middle, or something else. Ultimately, they're always going to get it wrong. They're always going to disappoint, and someone's always going to blame somebody else. But he is crowned with many crowns. He's above and beyond it all. Right now, Jesus Christ is conscious, active head over all things. It may appear that the world is in chaos, but he is king over governments and rulers and principalities and molecules and atoms and science and universities and every new thought that hasn't been thought yet. He's the king over those things. He's crowned with many crowns and his name is the word of God. If you're a biblical scholar, you'll know that 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 name word is the word logos and it's found in John chapter 1 and it meant, it meant two different things to two different groups of people. If you were Greek, uh, the word logos meant the ordering principle within the universe. It was the thing that structured the universe. It called it into being. But if you were Hebrew, that word logos, it meant the creative force within the universe. And so when we're told that his name is the word of God, 
we're being told that his, his, his name is authoritative. His power is authoritative. It shapes and it orders things. It creates things and it continues to create things. And when the word speaks, notice here in this passage, when the word speaks, he speaks blessing upon the people of God. You're blessed. Come into the marriage feast of the Lamb. You're blessed. It's going to be okay. And he speaks curse to the people who have chosen not to be the people of God. His word has power. And then we read he is the king of kings and the Lord of laws. His name is stamped on his thigh. He is the name above every name. He is the ruler above every ruler. He has all power and all authority. And he's coming. And we read, we haven't got time now, but we read there is a battle that is formed between the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and the enemy of God's people, Satan. And the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords has his army and the enemy has his army. But you'll notice something really interesting. The King of Kings army are dressed in fine linen, white, <laughs> which is, to be honest, a ridiculous thing to go into battle with because linen creases dreadfully. I have found, you know, it's just, it's just you wouldn't, if, 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 these guys are not expecting to fight. You don't go into battle on horses with white linen on if you're about to fight. You're there to witness the inevitable victory that's already been won and Jesus is just going to mop the deal up and sort it out because the victory was won at the cross and the resurrection. And all this stuff is being thrashed around as the enemy is exposing himself and overplaying his hand so that the people that God loves can say, oh, that's the consequence of living outside of a relationship with God. If I put God in the rearview mirror and I drive away, I drive away not only from his love and his purposes, I also drive away from his wisdom I also drive away from his life so no wonder I find love I try and find love in all the wrong places no wonder I do stupid things no, no wonder I can never find purpose in life and no wonder I can't understand this life in all its fullness oh that's why the enemy is allowed to play his part because God loves you so much he's wanting to give you another on-ramp another opportunity so you will find yourself in that relationship that he desires above every other relationship, a relationship of love. And so they're just sitting there in their white linen suits, watching the king of kings judge the world. These are his names. The question is this, are you ready to meet him? I mean, are you ready to meet him? I mean that seriously. Uh, I don't mean it to frighten you. But it's one thing to be afraid of what's going on in the world. You don't need to be afraid, by the way. Because he's the king of kings and the lord of lords. It's another thing to have fear of God. Because he's coming on the clouds. Kings and kingdoms will bow down. Are you ready to meet him? And then John is given this picture in Revelation 20, and we haven't got time now, but he's, we see a throne in heaven. And God is on the throne, and he's judging. And then the books are opened. 
The books are open to judge the living and the dead. Everything that's ever been done, everything that's been sorted out is judged. Are you ready to meet him? And, and my answer initially is, no, of course I'm not ready to meet him. If he's, if he's you know, got king of kings and lord of lords on his leg and, and, and he, you know, he's got the word of God in his heart, of course I'm not ready to meet him because I'm a messed up, broken individual who judges everybody on the way from here to Morningside. I'm messed up. I'm busted and I'm broken. If you only knew who I really was, you'd never let me preach. Am I ready to meet him? No. And then we read this, verse 11 of chapter 19. He's dressed in a robe dipped with blood. I think we're supposed to understand this is his own blood. The blood of Jesus poured out on a cross 2,000 years ago for you so that you who are never going to be ready to meet the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings might be ready because you might be forgiven. You might be healed. You might be cleaned up. You might be acceptable. And you might be found in him. Are you ready to meet him? Hope in this world is in the fact that Jesus is coming back. And he's going to judge the living and the dead. And the stuff that's incompatible with his nature and causes damage to the people that he loves is going to be dealt with forever. And the only decision left is a choice that you have to decide that you're going to stand the weight of your life, the weight of your future, and the hope that you have on the belief in your heart that there is a God in heaven who sent his son to die for you. That's the choice. Are you going to say, I'm going to stand the weight of my life on the authority of the fact that Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus rose again for me and is coming back? Or are you going to continue to stand the weight of your life on culture, on tradition, on reason, on feeling, on what this world is saying and the panic that's going on in our world right now? Hope is in judgment because judgment is an outworking of the love of God. Do you know, when I was a kid, I grew up in a church where my dad was the pastor, and um, we used to watch these TV series about Jesus coming back, and I honestly, most nights, I was scared. Life was filled with guns and war, and everyone got trampled on the floor. We used to sing these songs, you know, I wish we'd all been ready, and then we used to sing a song about two men walking up a hill, one disappears and one's left standing, I used to be freaked out. Honestly, every single time, every single time, every single time there was a thunderstorm, I'd wake up and I'd run around the house. I'll tell you why I'd run around the house. Because I was the worst one in the house. And I always thought everyone else was going to be taken and raptured. I would be left behind. I used to run into my parents and go, ah! It's okay. I'm okay. I'm not, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not preaching this stuff to scare you into anything. But I have this thing. I think God is allowing a shaking in our world today where yesterday's certainties have become today's insecurities because we're beginning to realize and have exposed for us that the authorities that we place the weight of our lives on 
are nothing more than false authorities. And Jesus is allowing a shaking because he's preparing to come back. And when he comes back, he's going to judge the living and the dead. And he says, there's only one question. What side are you on? And there's only one way to get on the right side. It's to say, yes, Jesus, I need you. I need your love. I need your forgiveness. I need your healing. I need your life. And I need you now. So we're going to pray. Let's do that. And in just a moment, we're going to we're going to worship Jesus and we're going to allow an opportunity for anyone who, who wants to know hope in the middle of fear to receive prayer because God is a God of grace and he, he doesn't want you to be afraid. He wants you to know his touch in your life. But, but before we do that, I want to offer an opportunity for anyone here today who knows that as I was speaking, God was speaking to them. And you'll, you'll know if that's true, don't you? you? You will know. It wasn't the preacher. It was something else going on. And today you want to say, yes, Jesus, I want to be found in you. If I'm going to live my life for anything, I want to live my life for you. I want to make a choice. I want to make a choice to trust you with my life. Would you come into my life? Would you forgive me? of living outside of your purposes and would you be my king of kings and my lord of lords if you'd love to do that I can lead you in a prayer and I'd love to lead you in a prayer so if, if God's been speaking to you every head bowed, every eye closed we're not going to do this a big public thing but if you'd love to pray a prayer you'd love to find yourself in Jesus tonight with a different perspective on life then put your hand up and I'd love to lead you in a prayer you're going to pray it I'm not just going to pray it myself So just do that, and I'll pray for you. Thank you, God. Yeah, thank you. There's one other person. Okay, let's pray. Just pray this prayer in, in your heart after me. Jesus, I'm done with running my life myself. It doesn't work. It just gets messier. And I believe that you are the son of God and that you're God's gift to me. You came and died. You rose again. And I want to invite you into my life, into my world. Come and be my savior my friend and my leader I trust you now and I want to trust you every day of my life from this moment onwards and now would you send your spirit and bring me the hope that I need to walk through this world I ask this in Jesus name Amen